Hi, welcome back to the Odin's Light podcast. I'm Gillan Williams and uh, today I'm going to be talking about preparing to go into the final shoot for Hosts. It's the feature film that I'm working on with uh, Adam Leader, Richard Oakes and Craig Hind. Uh, my first feature film and um, so I'm going to talk about how I'm preparing for it, um, the importance of great catering and how, what I'm doing to get ready essentially. And also Richard and I went to see 1917 last night and we had a reaction to the movie. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks again for tuning in and all the support you've been giving me and I uh, hope you enjoy. About going into the final shoot, I've been thinking about how long I've been waiting for this opportunity and how grateful I am that it's happening. I do need to remind myself to think about that because it's easy to get caught up in the role of producing without taking a moment to appreciate what we're doing here. We're making a movie. We're, we're doing something that a lot of people talk about. It's something that's hard to do. And uh, I count ourselves as incredibly lucky. It's, I mean, there's a lot of hard work to make it work, but there's also... I think there's an element of luck involved in it as well. I'm a mixture of excited and nervous. I've been waiting for this opportunity for a long time, as I said, and several years, in fact. I attended film school over a decade ago, and at the time, going into film just didn't open up to me. So I took some different paths. I worked in publishing and marketing, but those roles never really satisfied me. Although, saying that, as it turns out, I think it was probably the best thing that could have happened. I've gained insight into marketing and PR that I wouldn't have had if I'd gone straight into film. Plus, I've learned how to manage a team, delegate, listen, understand my own limits and how to embrace the creative input from other people. Um, I have a lot of skills, but I also know my limitations. Listening to other people is something that I'm always working on. It's a constant battle with the ego, something that never really goes away, I think. And just when you think you've got something figured out, that's when you're most likely to be wrong. That's the attitude I'm bringing to this shoot. It's the final um, sort of leg of the um, the host shoot. We're doing all the externals. Um, we were going to shoot it at the end of last year, but it just wasn't wintry enough. Um, you'll, I don't want to give anything away about what the film is about at this stage, but it'll make sense when you see it. And we just had to wait for the uh, the externals to look as they do now. I've done a lot of research and preparation for the shoot, but my crew has a lot more experience than I do, which is the way it should be. I heard a great saying the other day that the producer should be the dumbest person in the room, and I agree with that. You should hire and develop a team that have skills that you don't have. A lot of the final decisions have to be made by the producer, I understand that, but the decision should be influenced by the advice of the greater insights and experience of your HODs um, and with the absence of ego. There's another great piece of management advice I try to live by, which is that you are there to support your team and help them do their job with the least amount of friction possible. Uh, I think often it's seen in, in a management role that you are the pinnacle of a, of a pyramid. I think it's better to look at it inverted, whereas you are at the bottom and responsible for making sure that everybody above you in that version of uh, seeing it has everything they need to do their job the most effectively. Of course, you have the authority that comes with the role, um, which sometimes you have to exercise. And fortunately, there were a couple of team members which had to be asked to leave the project simply because they weren't doing their job. It's not a decision I take lightly. And there's a discussion with the film management team before it happens. As it turns out, that was the right thing to do. And there was a sense of relief within the team for doing it. I'm not someone who likes to throw the weight around, but 
you have to take your responsibility seriously. Otherwise, it will come at the cost of the project. Coming back to the shoot next week, I'm excited to get back onto set and work with the production team. Fortunately, the directors Richard and Adam and the co-producer Craig have been working in the industry for a while, so they were able to put together a really good crew of people um, that they've worked with before. As I'm preparing for the shoot and making sure everything is in place, I'm also trying to think of those things that can go wrong and, and put plan contingencies in for it. Some of these include actresses are going to be out there in the cold weather in dresses. It's a night shoot in the winter. A cold and wet actor is going to be miserable and not give their best performance. We're going to have warm vehicle just at a shot with hot water bottles, warm drinks, blankets for them to jump in in between setups. One of the other concerns is health and safety. One of the actors is going to be in a harness for a couple of the shots. So I'm insisting that uh, myself and one of the directors actually get in the harness um, before with the shoot, before we ask the actor to hang in it, because we're going to appreciate what it feels like to be in it. It'll help us... Be be considerate to them and understand what they can do to perform in it. We're filming in the woods at night in the winter, as I said. We've already wrecked the location in the daytime, but I want to go up there in the dark before filming just to understand the space and any potential hazards that we might not have realised were there in, in the daylight. Other standard tasks, such as moving shots around to make filming smoother. And we're also going to see if we can get some additional shots if we have the time. I'm trying to plan in space for the directors to be creative, so we've blocked out time to get the shot list done and then before we move on to the next setup just try something creative on the spot and to see what comes out another thing i wanted to mention was the lesson i learned during the night shoot last year um, and that was the importance of good catering we've got an excellent caterer called jason twigger from inner circle catering who really looked after us he was happy to work all night and kept us all well fed we treated him as an integral member of the crew, not like an ancillary afterthought. I believed that looking after your cast and crew like this pays off. And the last shoot proved that. We found that a good caterer brought more than just good food to the set. I'm sure to say great food. Meal times were a chance for the team to re-energise and knit as a team. Um, we having great food that we look forward to eating and that kept us going through the night. Motivated the team more than a pep talk from me ever could have done. We were asking a lot from the team and we were working long hours through the night. They really committed and were incredibly professional, creative and productive, even in the small hours of the morning. Having someone who's giving us the energy to do that is invaluable. I would argue that money spent on catering is akin to money spent on screen. You can't expect your actors to give their best in a packet of sandwiches and a bag of crisps. Stay tuned to hear Richard Oakes and my reaction to 1917, Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins' one-shot war film. So I'm sat here with Richard Oakes, who some of you may know from uh, the first podcast. Hello. We've just come out of watching uh, 1917 and uh, wanted to give our opinion on the film. Yeah, I, 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 overall I thought it was good. It's definitely a good film. Um, I've got a few thoughts about it. One well, of good, th otherwise we wouldn't have much to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the, um, it's not your epic war movie in, in that... You don't have that sense of scale, like from the wide shots, because it's so intimate with the camera the whole way through, and I think that was the point. Yeah, I, I think there's a debate to be had here. I, I went into it not knowing how I would feel. I mean, like technically, like the one shot thing is always impressive, and it's a, a great testament to great filmmaking. But I always go in thinking, is it going to be a detriment to the actual storytelling? And I've come out still not sure. <laughs> I'm not convinced about the one shot because there are times when 
you're, I'm stepping out of the story and I'm not suspending disbelief anymore and I'm, my mind is focused on the camera. Now, I don't know if that's because we're filmmakers and we're very yeah. aware of that or whether that's just the nature of a one-shot film because it's so different that it draws your attention. Yeah, I think there's a bit of both and I think it, it definitely had some pros and it definitely had some minuses. I think it's a real balance. There was, I think the one thing that it did add being in one shot or looking like it was one shot was that it, it did keep you gripped the whole time. Um, it felt like you could, like normally in a film you kind of wait for a cut to like a new location where it's establishing and it calms down a bit and then you eat your food <laughs> you, yeah, know what I mean? you, yeah, you eat yeah. your popcorn or your christmas stuff i i felt like i didn't get a chance to do any of that. I've, like i've still got a full bag of crisps in my bag and stuff because there wasn't really any of those moments that kind of i guess cooled down a bit well there was but you never knew what was going to happen what next. was what was going to happen next and it kept you kind of just drawn the whole time and drawn the, I think the closest film I can compare it to even though that's not a one shot film but just through the nature of following one guy through the whole film through these things happening is Dunkirk and it kind of mm -hmm. had a similar feel but yeah. lots of people have problems with that not being epic enough and not being big enough and and not a massive story to it I don't think there's a massive story to this it's just just happening do you know what I mean? that's about it just happening is an interesting point because there's obviously the main arc, but what I felt at times is that the two characters were the vehicles that you were following through, them. they were taking you through this landscape, but a lot of the story to me was being told through the horror of the bodies yeah. buried in the, in, the, in the dirt in the craters, and just the, you know, the, the awful things. I don't want to turn this into a spoiler cast, but it was the things happening around them for, for for me, certainly in the first half of the film, that was almost telling more about the, well, the, the story of where they are than the characters were. Yeah, and it's it's a film that's a journey and you're just following along this journey from A to B and you're seeing things happen along the way. Yes, and I what I felt with the camera being close to them as well the whole time because you don't really get a big scale it's not a it's not a big scale movie it's not a you know it's, it's not a Saving Private Ryan or you know like the old epics like Ben-Hur or whatever where you have these huge shots and sort of this epic thousands and thousands of extras uh, there are some scenes where there are obviously clearly a lot of extras on there you've seen it in the trailer but it's very intimate and you're not really told much more than the characters know or the characters would know in that scene. And that's different because often sometimes the camera tells the audience or you, you have the knowledge gap. Which, yeah, it uh, might David cut Babbley to another to. location and show, you know, a, a conversation with the generals or stuff like that. But this ne that never happens in this film. Um, but again, I think this is another thing with my issue that I was worried about going into this film was whether it would just be like following from either behind or in front or to the side and be, feel a bit like a computer game the whole way through. And um, I'd heard some people talk about it and go, no, it's not like that. It, they've done a really good job. I'm still not convinced. I still feel like you're kind of over their shoulder or this and that. There are some great set pieces with some great camera movements, but for the majority of the film, I do think they could have added some more variety. And I know you were saying just before we did this podcast that the filmmakers wanted to keep that intimacy like you were a third member of this twosome. Unit. Yeah. yeah, this yeah. unit that's that's making its way. So you've got to feel close to them. But then there's now and again when the camera breaks that rule. So I feel like if they can break it, why not break it a few more times? 
and just give a bit more spectacle, a bit more variation in the shots. I think there was just not enough variation for my liking to, to kind of keep it really as, as good as it could have been, especially knowing that Roger Deakins was DOPing and how skilled he is. And he's done a fantastic job, but I think there could have been more variation there with just more wides or more aerials or... You know, you could have d- done some bird's eye shots, but there was not one bird's eye shot yeah, in the film. Yeah. Like, it was very that, much that, behind them f- or in front of them. I know for a fact, having heard Roger talk about that, is that that was that was by intention. Um, one of the most difficult things they sh- worked out how to shoot was the um, was the scene in the in the river. There's a river scene, and where to place the camera. They didn't want it to be viewing from above on the shoreline. Because it might give you the impression that you're seeing it from someone else's perspective, yeah. Um, and that was that was quite difficult to do. And his argument was that he didn't want the movement of the camera to become something that you're aware of, and yet, I feel it was. I feel that you couldn't really get away from that. And there's no way in a one-shot film. I think that's literally all a one-shot do film does is is keep you aware of the camera, is keep you aware of how did they do that, how have they moved here. That's all. I mean, again, we're filmmakers and interested in this because it's a you know a, an impressive feat that they've done but I do feel like you are aware of that the whole time and yeah I, I just think there could have been a bit more variation I think the lighting and stuff especially the night shots was really well done yeah yeah um, yeah and there are some spectacle bits like you said where you're like well you don't want to have the camera doing things that the person wouldn't but there are shots don't want to kind of spoil any shots but there are shots where the camera does things that I'd like to have seen more of that aren't natural that aren't following alongside or over the shoulder but yeah there could have been a lot more of that Here's a question for you. If it had been filmed in a regular format, how would you have felt about the film? The reason I ask that is everybody's talking about the camera work in this and nobody's really talking about the story. Yeah. And I think that's quite a point. I think it is. A, it's, it's a film that's made for the camera work. It's a film to try to do something different. And I think that's good. And I think the film is where it is because of the camera work. And I think that's something to be celebrated. Whether it works as to tell a, a, de- a great story, I, I don't know. I enjoyed it, don't get me wrong. Sounds like I'm pulling it apart. I'm just questioning certain things. I think it's a film that should have been made, and I think it's a film that I'm glad has been made, and I, I will buy it. But I don't know if that would have been better than putting that time and effort into those, you know, great director and great DOP just making a normal war film with something else that we haven't seen before. We have seen the one-shot thing done before. I know it's not as common, so it, I mean it is great that it's it's been made, but yeah, I, I don't I don't quite know where I sit with it. Like it's it's an odd one. For me, the performances are good. Um, you know, no one gives a bad performance, but there wasn't anything that really gripped me. That wasn't what gripped me. It was more about the scenarios that they were in and you know seeing again the carnage of war but in this one because you were quite intimate with the guys it seemed more personal and that hit home with me more especially seeing that the death in in the uh, in the, in the craters and the trenches to me that was more effective so that's good in terms of storytelling one of the main protagonists he basically ends up where he starts off and that's not normally the case because i don't know how much he really changed no but i think i think that was intentional it's it's almost like war is just a a loop of horror isn't it because he's not going home that's a fair point and that's what's daunting about it is you you finally get to this place with the characters and you you go like oh there's a sense of relief it's it's finished he's sitting down you know it's, it's done but it's not like that's just one mission for him like he's gonna be sent off or sent back or 
or whatever, and it's going to carry on the war until it's finished for him, or he dies. <laughs> yeah, until the last man standing is, yeah. to, to quote the film. Yeah. To come back to the camera work, it's one thing that it made me realise was how much we rely on editing to consume a story, and that the cut gives you a beat, and gives you a break, so you absorb what, what's going on, and also give you gives you the relief when you cut to a wide like you said earlier, that's when you'd normally grab your crisps or whatever. And it's that sense of relief. Okay, now I'm, it's less intense because I'm not up close. When that's taken away, it makes you realise how you normally consume a film. Yeah, it definitely makes you feel more alert because it's it's definitely out of the standard that we're used to. Like the cut of a film, the, the next shot, it's like blinking, whereas this film's like watching it with your eyes held open for the whole time. It's with no blinking and it's it's uncomfortable and, and difficult. Just slightly different, talking about the one-shot thing, obviously it wasn't shot in one shot. Um, it was interesting, obviously we were both looking for the cuts and looking for where the cuts were done and I think it was done really well in this with a, with a, with a variation of techniques. It, it wasn't just the old something black passes in front of the lens or a whip pan. There were some interesting techniques to have done it. Not all... 100% successful. Um, I was telling you just before the podcast that there's one shot when he climbs out the river and he passes a tree and it looks like they've done some masking and it, they've, they've cut with masks so they follow the tree with the mask and then they underlay the next bit of footage behind the tree. Yeah, yeah. And what I noticed was a slight difference in the movement of the footage behind the tree to the footage with the tree on and it kind of was like ah uh, I, 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 did, I didn't notice the background moving um, but what I did notice is that when he came into shot that the perspective was slightly different than it was when he went behind the tree yeah and I saw the perspective difference on a few of those masking tricks on a few places one was when they come out that big crater near the beginning and it passes by the barbed wire the perspective it looks like a different location that they're, yeah. they've masked away uh, but it's really well done, especially because both sides are not on a crane and or on a dolly that's very smooth. It's on a, on like a Ronin, like a, a three-axis gimbal, where you, everything in the uh, parallax is, is moving back and forwards differently. And I've, I've noticed from doing certain things on Point of No Return war film that I've shot, very similar when you're trying to stabilise footage. You can't because it will pick something to stabilise, but then the the foot say say you you stabilize it the background might be stable but then the person in the foreground is wobbling around right, on okay. top of it or if you stabilize it to the person the background is wobbling around because with a with a gimbal three axis gimbal which I noticed a lot in this film is the foreground and the background move at different rates like it's because there's a a, a parallax there and mm-hmm. and it's I kind of find that awkward and I was saying to you that because I own that technology I think it's cheaper. Right. If you know what I mean, because yeah. I always think I'm bad at my job. So if I use a tool and become good at that and know the look of that, if I see that in a, a Hollywood film, I'm like, oh, that's cheap, because I've got it. Did you got it, I mean? yeah, yeah. It's... To be fair, not not an issue that most people run into. <laughs> <laughs> but I've, I've always found that, like, uh, say, like, visual effects, like if I buy a package of overlays or explosions or something, if I see one of those explosions in a film, I'll be like, oh... Well, that's cheap, because I've got that. I do remember seeing, oh, um, I think it's a Red Hot Chili Peppers video way back when, and no, it's not, it's uh, Foo Fighters. Um, I can't remember the track, but the um, the, the backgrounds 
came from LiveType, which was a free plugin that came with Final Cut Pro. And I had, I remember having that and thinking, that is the cheapest thing ever. And it had totally disrespected the video because of that. And that wouldn't be something that most people would think about. It's but... strange, isn't it? I, I, I remember um, going to the cinema and they had, a, you know, they have trailer for the cinema and like, and it had all this motion graphics going and it had the ship that we use from Exit Plan oh, flying out. And I was like, <laughs> oh, that's in my film. And I didn't realise it was that common old 3D model. Obviously, I'd bought it as an asset online. Yeah for my short film but yeah it was weird seeing it on a cinema screen for someone else's thing speaking of films earlier in the podcast i've been talking about just preparing for the final week of hosts yeah um my thoughts on that and things i'm trying to prepare for and things i've learned on the last shoot that i'm trying to bring to this one and just the the multiple problems that can happen and trying to sort of uh Uh, create contingencies for those but i'm interested to hear about how you feel because it's not just my first feature it's it's yours too and i'm on it thanks to you but yeah you excited to to get into the last week yeah just it's not my first shooting feature no but your first first directing yeah yeah yeah. Yeah, i'm excited to get it done i mean it's been well eight months since we last shot something like that something like that yeah so I kind of you know with these projects when you put it down for a while you kind of lose interest a bit and then ramping up to getting back into the shoot I've, I've been opening up the project going through tweaking the edits like revamping all the visual effects that I've done and adding more and stuff like that and I've really kind of gotten excited again and got the buzz for it again and I'm ex- I'm just excited to get it shot and done and finally finish it because it's 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 been frustrating because it's it's taken a while but not because we've been working on it so long it's we've had to hold do you know what I mean yes, and that's we have. frustrating yeah, so uh, we were due to shoot these external scenes um, back in November, October, thinking it would look wintry, and it just didn't. It's like no. and at the end of October, it still looked like summertime, and in November, it it just didn't look like Christmas. So. No, it was it was yeah, pure orange leaves still on all the trees, and we were like, we can't we can't wait six months for it to look like winter and then shoot in the autumn. It doesn't make any sense, so we we held off um, another month and a half i'm really looking forward to getting it done i'm going into it with a sense of excitement and nervousness because especially shooting in the woods at night in winter there's so many issues which are going to crop up i've still got to Uh, buy my winter stuff i'm going off to iceland to shoot on a glacier the same one they used in interstellar so (laughs) i need to get some winter clothes yeah i think you'll be out there in some harems (laughs) (laughs) for those who don't know richard his uh yeah his clothing choices are Questionable. Ab- abnormal. <laughs> For the most part. Yeah, I gave in. Uh, my wife was always like, you should buy some Hurrians. And I'm like, nope. And then we ended up going to Thailand and I was like, you know what? I'm going to get some. And I've just worn them ever since. Yeah. I need to wash them, really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not a harem kind of guy, I don't think. Well, thank you to those who are listening. Appreciate your support and for tuning back in again. And Richard, thank you uh, for appearing on the podcast again. No problem. It's been a pleasure. Oh, <laughs>